stands at 10. And I haven't really had as much time as I usually do to consider this stanza. I should say it hasn't been on, on my mind as maybe the last one was. But I'm going to try and go through it and see what pops up in my, as Paul Vanderclay would say, salience hierarchy. Let's see how this works. Okay. First line. I would that I might with the minstrels sing and stir the unseen with a throbbing string. I would that I might. So he's saying, I, I would if I could with the minstrels sing. So these minstrels, again, these are the sub-creators, but they're also a subset of the sub-creators. They are maybe sub-sub-creators. And in a way, these are the people he was talking about in the last stanza when he said, Blessed are the legend makers that don't bid us flee to organize delight. They, they haven't for, forgot the night. They don't, they don't forswear souls to gain a Ceres kiss. Or in other words, they don't forswear the deep aspects of ourselves, the eternal aspects or the uh, beautiful aspects of ourselves in order to satisfy sensuality. These fleeting passions. In some ways, this is the same as what Marx says in the Communist Manifesto. He says, religion is the opiate of the masses. Now, what does he mean by that? I think he means the same thing as what Tolkien here is saying by forswearing souls to gain a Ceres kiss. So remember that Ceres is this Greek goddess of herbs and medicine, this palliative goddess. But herbs and medicine, no matter if it's old medicine, old herb lore, or if it's modern distilled medicine, these are all masks. They only mask the problem. So say if you took an opiate, if you took Percocet, for example, that's not going to get rid of, say, a pain in the knee. What's going to get rid of the pain in the knee is actually getting in there and fixing whatever is wrong with the tendons or the bones, the muscles. But that opiate is merely going to mask that so you don't have to think about it. And it may be that in taking that opiate, you aren't feeling the pain and in that way you aren't going to be putting less pressure on that area you're you're going to be using it in a way that might damage it further all this to say what is the what is the it, it if we incorporate this concept into the soul or swearing of a soul i think we can see that we have a lot of things that distract us. I think it was Pascal had this idea of distraction. That many things in our life, 
I think some would even say most things in our life, are purely palliative. They're purely opiates. And they mask pain and suffering. And that doesn't mean that it's cured, but it, it, it distracts us for a bit. I thought it was interesting that Marx and Tolkien, I would assume, are extremely different people idea, ideo, ideologically. But I think they're saying the same concept here, if not advocating for the same end. But these minstrels, they are the select among the sub-creators that set the tone for others to sub-create. Like I said in the last stanza, about the last stanza, I should say. Writers do this. Popular musicians. Political figures. Anyone who has a certain... A certain higher station. Or high, higher salience. Broadly designated by the common people set the tone for sub-creation for the rest of us and so these minstrels Tolkien wishes that he would be able to sing the song of sub-creation in a way that the minstrels sing it we can think of the high elves in the Lord of the Rings story and how the, the way that they remember Ero Iluvatar, the creation of Middle-earth, and their history, is to sing about it. And obviously that's reminiscent of true human history. History used to be purely oral. And that's where we got the the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Obviously, at the Aeneid, things are being written down, but that tradition of poetic storytelling, it, it kind of blends the song and regular spoken word and creates a poem out of it. So you have those integrated in that. And that's what these minstrels do. They weave the abstract and the concrete. And they put it in a way that appeals not only to our rationality, but to our intuitions and our passions. Maybe a way to say it would be the Freud's id. Music speaks to that. And stir the unseen with a throbbing string. Stir the unseen. What would be the unseen here? Because, at least in this line, unseen is not capitalized. My first, my first inclination would be to think of this as God, as Tolkien's idea of the Catholic Christian God. But... If he were talking about that, wouldn't he capitalize 
unseen here. So what else would unseen be? Stir the unseen with a throbbing string. I think this goes back to what I said about the id, Freud's id in the last line, is there are things that touch us intellectually, rationally, and then there's ways of communicating that touch our fundamental nature from a religious perspective touch our souls because something like music tends to be thought of as transcendent in some special way it'd be interesting to get into exactly what people mean by transcendent when they're talking about music but for another time next line I would be with the mariners of the deep that cut their slender planks on mountains steep. These lines here are really in interesting because first we have mariners of the deep who, who cut their slender planks on mountains steep. So we have of, of the deep, but they cut their planks on mountains steep. So we have the, the low, the very deep, and we have the very, the very high. So what, what could Tolkien be saying here about these mariners? I think um, it's hard to, hard to do this line by line, but later on in the stanza he talks about And voyage upon a vague and wandering quest, for some have passed beyond the fabled west. So these mariners they've passed beyond common knowledge and they in some ways hold the transcendent in in themselves one of the one of the dialogues of plato i want to say it's the phaedrus maybe it's 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 about socrates talking to this reciter of poetry and in the way that this reciter of poetry talks about his recitations is that he's not the one doing it. He talks about it as the gods speaking through him. Or maybe the muse speaking through him. And so he takes no credit for it. In some ways it's like Socrates' day daemon that urges him to do certain things to restrain, well, I guess Socrates would say it, it only tells him what not to do. When he goes to court for his apology, he says, the, the daemon did not tell me not to come here, so I came. But, back to these mariners, they, they have something within them because they've passed beyond the fabled west. And with, with this term deep and then mountain steep, they've gone to the lowest points and they've been to the highest points. And so they see existence and maybe past and future in a more well-rounded way, in a more 
cumulative way and they're able to express it to us if as Tolkien says in the above chapter we hear and yet may yet beware so they've gone deep they've gone high and they voyage upon a vague and wandering quest they voyage upon a vague and wandering quest this makes me think of the most popular, I think, quote from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, who I think it's Aragorn says this with Bilbo when they're talking. He says, or it's Bilbo's poem about Aragorn. I think that's it. He says that not all who wander are lost. And we see that on bumper stickers and water bottles. But that's a beautiful encapsulation, I think, of what he's saying here by these mariners voyage upon a vague and wandering quest, for some have passed beyond the fabled west. So not all who wander are lost. Their voyage is vague and wandering, but it's kind of makes me think of how Aristotle talks about the ideal existence of the gods on the Isle of the Gods where people don't do things for in for a certain end they don't they don't go to work to get money to pay the bills to make your spouse happy to be able to pro to procreate to be able to such and such and such and such they do things because they're completely satisfied in their desires so anything they do is for the sake of the thing itself and with these with these mariners they've been beyond the fabled west and so now they're not searching for it anymore but they're still curious, adventurous, and they still want to set out on this voyage. And maybe Tolkien hopes if he goes with them, they can enlighten him to what they've found. Next line. I would with the beleaguered fools be told that keep an inner fastness where their gold I would with the beleaguered fools be told. He has so much in this poem about inadequacy, about not enoughness, about creatures such as ourselves that in relation to what we could and should be and in relation to God, we are I should just say in the next line here, we are impure and scanty. We are not these ubermenches that Nietzsche talks about, but we could be. But of course in the Bible it says, nothing that does not die to itself can live again. So we're not ubermenches in this context in the way that Nietzsche talks about the ubermensch. At, at least our potentiality is not that. It is as a sub-creator. And it's interesting to think about how 
someone may be a Christian Ubermensch and keep from going down the route of Milton Satan in trying to become the creator instead of the sub-creator. But that keep an inner fastness where they're gold. So they keep a part of themselves that's a bit secretive and they keep the capacity within themselves to worship the divine and through worship perhaps have a bit of that transmitted to us in some ways you can think about this in the way that if you don't feel if you're say a student for argument's sake and you go into a math class but you don't think you have anything to learn from that math teacher how difficult is it going to be to learn mathematics are you going to be able to learn calculus and algebra without instruction I would think that'd be quite difficult unless you're Leibniz or Newton I'm not personally so I would not be able to I have a hard enough time learning it with an instructor inner fastness where their gold impure and scanty yet they loyally bring to mint an image blurred of distant king so again this reality of God is obscure it's it's un, it's unknowable when it comes down to it we get intimations of what god may or may not be like through scripture experience emotional experiences transcendent visions for some of us but we never quite know and indeed where we are commanded not to assume that we know by creating these graven images or in fantastic banners weave the sheen heraldic emblems of a lord unseen fantastic banners weave the sheen heraldic emblems of a lord unseen I know there's something here there's some type of connection that I want to make with graven images and these fantastic banners so why are these fantastic banners which are heraldic emblems of a lord unseen why are these not graven images because i don't see them as that and perhaps for some people they would be but what makes these in kind distinct from the graven images that would be putting the divine into a box In some ways, the Fantastic Banners, they evoke in me an idea of subservience, of worship, maybe. And then, in the next line, we have heraldic emblems. So, heraldry in the Middle Ages was the, the symbol, the representation of your house, right? 
might be more complicated than that, but as far as I understand heraldry, it's it's a collection of symbols that symbolize what your house is about, what you're fighting for, who you're fighting under, and they're herald, heraldic emblems. So, emblems. So these aren't representations of the thing themselves, they're they're representations of heraldry and they are fantastic banners so I'm gonna have to think about this more but but I don't think we're crossing that that very thin line here into idolatry essentially because these are fantastic banners heraldic emblems of the Lord Unseen. And I think what Tolkien is essentially saying here is just that even though the gold that we can bring, as long as we bring it loyally and under the subservience of truth, divinity, then it will be taken as Jesus talks about the widow giving one penny, right? Where another man gave an immense amount of money. He says that this widow has given more than all of the others. And maybe that has something to do with this. I like that idea. It's nice. Makes me feel good. Alrighty, two more stanzas, and maybe we can get on to other poems. Not to say that I'm not enjoying this. I very much am. It's really helped me to to come to a closer understanding of what I think Tolkien's perspective was on theology. It's very easy to think about what Lewis's perspectives were, even though... I shouldn't be too quick with that because getting into his writings on apologetics, it's gets it goes in some weird directions some, sometimes. Maybe I shouldn't say weird, but unexpected directions. All right, well, we will get on with this hopefully soon. I've been pretty busy, but I will try and do this pretty soon. Have a good one. <laughs>